Well, everybody, welcome back to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. We're all sitting here together again today. My name is Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. Scott Wright, mediocre journalist. Kelly Turner, not a doctor. We had to work our way around the boxes again. We're having we're going to have to have a conversation with Katie about turning the studio into the shipping department. <laughs> I told you, Katie, only green M and M's for Scott. <laughs> no, he's being very particular to this. Sorry, morning, so maybe that'll translate into his storytelling. Yeah, it's I'm a little giddy today. I don't know why. I, think it's the I went weather. to bed early last night. The weather's a little different today, so you're like the those the cattle when the weather drops and you see them out there jumping and playing, yeah. and they're just excited. That was me. I did the little. I clicked my heels when I got out of the car. <laughs> I was so happy that it was what sixty degrees today. You have it's on your flannel. Day. Yeah, yeah. You I got my flannel shirt flannel. on. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, perfect day mm-hmm. for us to be inside doing true crime. Yeah. Well. We I have, have any- no idea what we're talking about today, so... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I, I only know the topic. Yeah. But I really don't know a whole lot about this. I've heard about this over the years, mm-hmm. and I've heard, you know, a little bit here or there, but I, it's just not something that I know a lot of details about, so I'm excited to learn. Well, you're dressed in it. black today. You both are, and we're yeah. going to talk about the Black Sox scandal. Can't wait. So that's appropriate. What? What are the black socks? Are you getting into that? Oh, yeah. Am I yeah. a little too heavy? You'll, well, you'll, you? you'll wish you'd never heard it after I'm finished today. Oh. It's going to be one of those. Yeah. Takes a minute. It does. Yeah. It does. And so the black sock scandal, where does that, what, where does that come from? Where are we, where are we, uh, what town are we in or We're city? in Chicago in 1919. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, we're throwing it back. Way back. Yeah. 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 Uh, I have a shout out before we get started. Go ahead. So, friend of the show, Caitlin Jolly Gossett, yes, is a brand new mommy. She shared on her Facebook page. As of October the second, uh, the son's name is Halen Brooks Gossett. Weighed seven pounds one ounce, Aww. which means that Caitlin's dad, Bo Jolly, also a big friend of the show, is now officially an old man because he's a grandpa. <laughs> so sorry to break that, that to you, Bo. Congratulations Let's to spoiling hey, like a little fellow again to Grandma and Grandpa Jolly. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, and both. then congratulations to Mom and Dad. Yeah. How sweet that is. Nice. Um, one more little shout out to our sponsor, the mm-hmm. Cherokee Chamber, uh, Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism, rolled out a brand new logo last week. Nice. And we've got a new ad, I think, going up for them with today's episode, the Shop at Home yep. uh, shop campaign. Local. That they, the Shop yeah. Local campaign. But yeah, they've got a brand new logo, so you can check them out on their Facebook page mm-hmm. and see their cute brand new logo that they're very proud of. It's nice. Yep. Just uh, yesterday, I attended the Fall Festival here in mm-hmm. lovely Center, Alabama. Yeah, how was it? Crowded. Let's, it's, I heard it was a good one. I heard some I, people say that that was the most crowded that it had been since before COVID. Well, it was oh, good that you nice. showed up yesterday because uh, a year ago you didn't bother to show up. No. And I Katie and I did all the work at yeah. the True Crime on Easy Street booth. Yeah. And uh, had the sunburn to show it. So uh, much so that y'all while. vetoed a booth this year. And yeah. so I was just left to just roam around yesterday. All right. Well, by myself, I didn't, neither of you were there. Mm-mm. I slept so, in yesterday. The first one I've missed in a while. I was yeah, out me of town. Too. Mm. But I yeah. always loved the Fall Fest. It was great. Had a great time. Uh, stopped by Cabo's booth and got some <gasps> delicious cheesecake. Yummy. To which I got lucky and purchased the last pecan cheesecake. Piece. You got any left? Oh, you just bought it by the piece. You didn't buy it the was, whole thing. She served slices of, okay. of of the cheesecake and I got the last pecan one. It's like a pecan pie on top mm-hmm. of a cheesecake. It's 
Well, you must've got there early because I heard she sold out quickly. She sold out before 10 o'clock. Wow. And so then Julie Graves, who was working the booth, proceeded to tell everybody that came up to the booth after that Mm -hmm. to ask for pecan cheesecake (laughs) that Kelly Turner... Got the last one. And I, and I mean, people were coming up to me going, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> so I had to go back to the booth and remind Julie um, what happens to snitches. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. We just <laughs> covered that uh, when we talked about I the said, mafia. you are going to get me assaulted at the fall festival today. No omerita at the Jake's on the Lake crew, who we're not supposed to mention on the show because they're not a sponsor of the show. You Jake's did it, on the Lake. but you did it. I wasn't going to do yeah. it and you just did it. So yeah, we've got to stop. I told Jake yesterday, I bumped into him and I said, you owe us a hundred dollars because we've mentioned you every week for the last three months. And he got a big kick out of that did not reach for his wallet. But he didn't know it because he's not been listening. This is true. But he so, was very tickled to hear about it. There you go. But not to the point of reaching for money. I know. I know. So anyways, I, but it happened to me all summer. I would go to get a piece of Cabo's cheesecake and I, and they go, oh, we just sold out. Mm, yeah, me too. And so I got lucky yesterday. Okay, well, yesterday was my The law day. of averages worked I won. out for you. Good. Yeah. And it was delicious. Mm, oh, I know it That was. is one of my favorite ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. all the cakes that she makes. It's so good. And I actually have her doing one for me for Thanksgiving because she does, you know, you can yeah. you can reach out to her if, and do this. If you, you have to do it weeks in advance. Oh, yeah. And so I have one ready. Her, it's a caramel apple. Her schedule Ooh. fills up. That's yeah. a good one, too. It sounds delicious. Good. Yeah. Before we get started with the baseball aspect of today's show, I, and I feel like we've talked about this before. Did you guys play sports in high school? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, what? I mean, Katie, Kelly? I, uh, I played basketball okay. up until my senior year. I didn't play my senior year. I played volleyball and I played softball. Okay. And Katie? I played basketball and well, up until 10th grade. Then I I cheerleaded and I ran track. Okay. All right. So, so these sports terms, we're not going to get way down in the weeds on sports terms today. We're talking about something that happened in baseball in 1919. So there's going to be some discussion of the game of baseball, but okay. I'm try. I've tried to find a different way to tell this story so that, for example, the two of you aren't bored to tears by a, a story <laughs> about baseball. I understand most of the baseball terms and lingo. My husband is a huge baseball fan, and he watches the Braves. Yeah, a lot of Braves time. fans here, and it's and it's playoff season now, which is why we wanted to visit this topic mm-hmm. in October. Yeah. So the baseball playoffs are... Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great time to do this. Right underway. Yeah. So this happened over 100 years ago. This that is Black crazy. Sox scandal happened in Chicago in 1919. Um, oh, Scott, you're wearing black socks. I am wearing black socks today. Was oh, that purposeful? No, I only have black socks. Oh, oh yeah. okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm officially an old man. All my socks are black. Okay. I think old men wear white socks. Oh, well then. Don't they? Yeah. With sandals. Is, should I switch now? Is it time? <laughs> should I go ahead and switch? I don't know if you're that old You yet. guys know why? Instead of, originally the white socks and the Red socks. Yeah. They were the red stockings and the white stockings. <laughs> that's what they were originally called. Really? That's what, that's what they were called. Yeah. Then. That they was their team name. Well, socks. here's the reason why those teams switched from stockings to socks because the newspapers requested it because the headlines fit together on the sports page better with a short name like socks than a longer mm-hmm. name like 
stockings, which is kind of a dumb name anyway, in my opinion. Yeah. But that's why they switched to socks, and I didn't know that. It works so much better. Yeah, it works. And the the spelling, I guess, was intentional. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, it shortens it up. I deal with that in my job still to this day. If you've got a headline with a long word in it or Mm -hmm. somebody, you know, there's a Formula One driver named Verstappen, and you can't get that on a headline. Mm -hmm. Just call him Max. It's basically a journalist world. We just have to live in it. Exactly. Yeah. First world problems. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The word doesn't fit on my page. So speaking of the newspapers, that's exactly how back in these days, people found out about the sports because this happened so long ago that there was certainly no television to watch the World Series on. There wasn't even a radio to listen to the World Series on. It would be 1921 before the first ever Major League Baseball game was broadcast live on the radio. Oh, wow. So you had to be in the park. You had to be in the park. Or there was another way that I found out about when I was researching this. So they would set up a telegraph station in hotels around the country. And they would set up chairs. Mm -hmm. And they on the wall in the back, they would have this gigantic baseball diamond. And somebody would be there with it with a stick and some adhesive panels with people's names and as the sports uh, information came in over the telegraph somebody would read it out loud and then some I guess maybe a girl in a short skirt would be down front moving the pieces around on the big board in the wall and that's how people found out about the live progress of a baseball game who weren't at the game back then okay which I thought was interesting a little theater yeah they just and that way I'm sure they uh, probably had drink specials and uh, finger foods and you know, you could. Oh yeah. Before they figured out the whole satellite thing about sure. baseball, it's like their version of bailing up to the barn. Yeah, still sounds like watching pretty, a game. Sounds like a pretty boring way to watch a pretty boring game, <laughs> and we'll let the jury decide <laughs> if this story uh, is boring because I don't think we, we try to find a way to different a different way to tell it. So we're going to tell it like it's a heist because if you think about it. That's what the Red Sox or the White Sox scandal was. And I'm going to say White Sox and Black Sox interchangeably today. And I'll but get you're to talking the, about the same team. I'm talking about the same team. The White Sox are the Black Sox for the purposes of this story. Okay. Now, before we get into the story, there's one other thing I have to say. There is a totally ridiculous, hilarious episode of Drunk History that tells oh, the story oh. of the Black Sox scandal. So if nothing else, spend 11 minutes. If this hour sounds too long for you, just <laughs> pull up Katie Nolan as the guest drunk doing the telling the story of the Black Sox scandal. Okay, I'm going to have to. It's hilarious. All right, I'm going to have to check that out. All right, so onward. 1919. You would think that since we like to do the set the table thing, that that would be a good idea here on the 1919 thing, right? But instead of setting the table, we're going to talk about what's going to be served on the table today. And just in time for fall, like we just talked about with the weather a few minutes ago, it was 85 degrees on Wednesday, but last night it was 44 degrees. And today fall is in the air. It's 60 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. I've got my uh, overshirt on, my plaid overshirt. You guys are dressed in warm clothes. It's, it just feels like fall outside. And so what better time than now to cook some stew. So right. we're going to cook okay. a bowl of stew today. All right. And just in case it sucks, we're going to call it Katie and Kelly's True Crime Stew. (laughs) That's funny. All right. Ingredient number one in the stew of ours is the year 1919 itself. It was a very tumultuous time in the history of the country. The Great War had just ended. Women were about to get the right to vote. Prohibition was about to plunge the country into 13 years of general lawlessness. 
There was a steel strike, a coal strike. There was a race riot in Chicago that killed dozens and injured hundreds. And so, like we say from time to time on this show, the world has always been burning. Always. Ingredient number two. The 19-teens had been a tumultuous time in the game of baseball in America. The games had been played. The game had existed since before the Civil War. The game of baseball itself. The National League was organized in 1876. The game was being played out of private clubs at the time. And betting was a big part of baseball from the very beginning. Wagering was always involved. In the, in the poem Casey at the Bat, which was written in 1888, there's a line that says, we'd bet even money now with Casey at the Bat. So even in the poem and the literature of the time, it was acknowledged that betting was part of the game. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that the National League came along in 1876 was to organize the game. You'd have to pay to get into the game. And pay, uh, players would all be paid on some sort of scale so that there was some sort of organization to this game, which was sort of getting away from everybody. Baseball was considered more intriguing for betting purposes than a four-minute horse race, and it was uh, more civilized than the brutality of boxing. Mm, yeah. Baseball was a place where you could take your lady friend for a nice afternoon out in the sun and place a friendly wager on the game while you were there. And so it was to gain an advantage against the other bettors that they started initially paying people to play. If they found some ringer from Idaho who could play baseball, they'd get him in and sign him up and put him on the team. And they would bet on the team with this new guy who was better than the other guys. That was, that was how they had to get, why they had to get the game organized so that that stopped happening. Uh, ingredient number three, speaking of those friendly wagers in baseball, if it was the intention to remove the gambling aspect of the game by organizing and legitimizing it in the 1870s, it backfired because two years after the National League was formed, the Buffalo Express newspaper disgustingly expressed that the local baseball club should, quote, fold up if they can't play a square game. Oh. So there was still illegal gambling happening. For example, outfielders had rocks thrown at them as they settled under a pop fly from someone in the bleachers who had bet against their team and needed that ball dropped in order for their runner to score. Dang. There were instances of gamblers actually running out onto the field and tackling base runners to try to prevent them from scoring. Brutal out there. Yeah. How does that work with the bets? I mean, is that... Well, before the game was organized, the final score took precedent, I guess. Yeah, it didn't matter, I don't guess. If you bet on a loser, you lost. There was no security on the field There was nothing. There was no way to keep that from happening. Wow. That's crazy. It would be awesome, though, if the runner then stopped running and then proceeded to kick that guy's ass. Well, yes. if it was that Ty tried. Cobb, he might very well have done that thing. You could bet on that, See, too. It was a tough one, wasn't yeah. he, Ty Cobb? Yeah. So the game of baseball, I mean, there was even a rumor back in 1912 that the 1912 World Series had been fixed. Now, it turned out later that that was just a rumor that gamblers had spread to try and affect the odds on the game. There was no legitimate ever found out about anyway uh, attempt to rig the 1912 World Series, but it wasn't outside the realm of possibility mm-hmm. to anybody who was involved in baseball, involved in gambling, knew the history of the game. Everybody knew that there were players out there that would take a dive for 500 bucks. Yeah, because they're not being paid that. Right. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, These guys, were they were making a pretty good salary at the time, but there wasn't anything in place that made sure that they got a fair portion of the money that they earned for their owners. And if you got hurt while playing, then oh well. Yeah, just, you're, just, you're out yeah, of luck. Right. Yeah. It was pretty much standard operating procedure at the time. There were rumors that floated around from time to time, but 
anything about players accepting money from gamblers. Uh, that got swept under the rug by the team owners and the league officials because they knew about it. But as long as the public didn't find out about it, they didn't feel like there was anything they could really do about it. They didn't know how to stop it mm-hmm. from happening. More pay. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Maybe they just didn't want to go there. Yeah. Uh, so this collective desire by the owners and the league officials to protect the business of baseball, even from illegal gambling and fixing the game, it, it, took, pre- it took precedence over the integrity of the game. And so at the time, it was easier for them to hide it than it was to try and fix it. Mm-hmm. And then the 1919 World Series came along. Mm. So certainly by 1919, professional gamblers, like, for example, criminal kingpin Arnold Rothstein, could clearly see that there was potential in turning the World Series into a money-making venture, a sure thing, a cinch. And Rothstein was smart enough to figure out a way to do this. The night before the 1919 World Series began, well-known sports writer Hugh Fullerton sent a telegram to all of the papers around the country that ran his syndicated column, and it said, advise all not to bet on this series. Ugly rumors afloat. Mm. So the night before the World Series began, one of the top sports writers in the country told all of his guys, lay off. Don't bet any money this, on this thing. This, something doesn't yeah. feel right or smell right or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Ingredient number four okay. in our true crime stew. America was about to experience a very unlikely World Series. The Cincinnati team that uh, had finished third in the American League the year before would be representing the American League in the World Series. And for the entire team, the Cincinnati Reds' successful run to the pennant was almost an unbelievable surprise. In fact, the fans in Cincinnati nicknamed the team's manager the Miracle Man for Mm. even getting them to the series. Oh, so they're like this Cinderella story. Yeah. I Uh, love that. And I said American League. I meant the the Reds are in the National League because the Chicago White Sox are are the the American League representative in these 1919 World Series. And they were the best team in baseball, by and large, at the time. Some say... The White Sox? Yes. Some say the best team that had ever played the game up to that time. Okay. Uh, We're going to mention a a few of the players' names today, but there's not going to be a quiz after, so don't write anything down. If anybody in the story becomes important enough that we need to retell you their name... We'll make it clear why we had to do that because we're going to limit this. There are eight guys involved on the team. Okay. The name of the book that, that tells the story is titled Eight Men Out. The, the movie that came along in 1988 that tells the story, Eight Men Out. So there are eight guys involved. We're not going to get down now, in the weeds on all of those guys. But you played nine people in baseball, Correct. right? So yeah. there's one... There was one guy who didn't. There were several guys who weren't in on it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's it, not all like It was the not the entire team. They was in on it, but they had enough. Mm. They thought they wanted to keep the number as small as they could and still have the requisite number of people to play badly at the right time in order to throw the game successfully. And eight was the number. Do these people who are behind this, and I assume you're going to get to that, Mm -hmm. um, do they just want Cincinnati to win? Do they want to complete the Cinderella story? No, they just, they want to worried about money. They want a sure thing because when, when the odds come out for this world series, the Chicago White Sox are going to be heavily favored to win. Mm-hmm. So Cincinnati will be a huge underdog. So a, a, a wager on the underdog pays more than you bet. Oh, yeah. If you get good odds, you could bet 30000 and make 50000 if your underdog team wins. And so the, the gambling aspect of this was to get money on the favorite, knowing that the favorite was going to lose. Okay. But 
the problem you have is when you start putting a bunch of money on the White Sox, well, those odds are going to change across the mm-hmm. country. So you've got to be the first guy to do it. Mm-hmm. Because when the odds start to change and all this money goes on the Reds and against the White Sox, mm-hmm. then the odds are going to change. So you're you don't not get make the as much. you don't get the good payout if you don't right. get in early. Exactly. Okay. So a lot of moving pieces here. You seem like you know a little bit about sports gambling, Scott. I mm. I have been into a, a sports book in a casino a time or two. We just talked about uh, yeah. uh, Lefty Rosenthal of when mm-hmm. we did the mafia movies so yeah i'm I'm, that this all just fell into place for me to talk about sports gambling so soon after we talked about casinos (laughs) um and now for the final ingredient in our true crime stew it's time for the spices and these with a little kick indeed the players on the white Sox did not get along with each other very well as author elliot asanoff wrote in his book eight men out which tells the a seminal story of this entire event. He said the White Sox in 1919 were, quote, a volatile and spirited club with bitterness, loaded with bitterness and tension. So these guys didn't like each other. Always fun. They they played well and were one of the best teams, if not the best team in baseball, despite the fact that they didn't get along off the field. Hmm. It's pretty amazing if they were able to come together and play yeah. that Think well. Think how good they could have been if they were, if there was teamwork and cohesion yeah. and not these two separate cliques and there were, there were the, the players ran in cliques. Uh, and the one thing that they all did have in common was they all despised the man that they worked for. Oh, no, okay. Charles A. Comiskey was a famous name in the history of baseball. He was one of those guys who had come up from the very bottom. He'd been a baseball guy when he was a little kid selling peanuts in the grandstand and worked his way up, played in the league for 15 years, bought a small team, parlayed it into ownership of the Chicago White Sox by the early 1900s. He was in his, he was 60 years old when all this happened. Why did they hate him? Because he was a miserly old man who did not pay them what they were worth. Okay. The, the White Sox actually had the nickname, the Black Sox before this scandal broke. And the reason for that was because Comiskey would not pay them to have their uniforms laundered. He was too cheap. So a lot of times they played in dirty uniforms and got the nickname, the Black Sox along the way. Wow. Every other team in the league got a four-day per diem for lunch, for meals when they traveled. The White Sox got $3 per day. Um, nobody on the team <clears throat> made a lot of money. He, he had one of the highest overall uh, salaries of all the teams in the league, but none of all of his players individually were underpaid for the job that they did, for the talent that they had. Mm-hmm. Shoeless Joe Jackson, one of the best hitters in the history of the game at the time, uh, was horribly underpaid. Anywhere else, he would have made twice as much money as he did with the White Sox. Mm. Why so did they leave? There, or was well, that not a thing? You, you couldn't back then because there was a clause in your contract that basically uh, chained you to the man who signed you and brought you into the league for the entirety. Uh, it was called the reserve clause. It was like servitude, yeah, basically. It was. It was. And so yeah. you, oh. had to take, you had to take whatever you were offered as salary or you didn't get to play unless the owner decided to trade you or sell you to another team in the league, mm-hmm. he owns you professionally for the entirety of your career. Mm-hmm. Again, this was before players got organized and they were horribly underpaid at the time. And so it was easy to see how somebody like uh, veteran White Sox pitcher Eddie Seacott, who was closing in on 30 wins in 1917 playing for the White Sox, 
Comiskey sat him for the last two weeks of the season when he had 29 wins because the deal was that if Seacott got 30 wins, he would get a $10,000 bonus. And so Comiskey sat him down and he missed his final two starts and the chance to win the 30th game and the 10 grand. Wow. That is wild. That's another level right there. Uh, one last thing terrible. about Comiskey's miserliness. He promised that 1917 team that if they won the American League pennant, which they did, that he would give them all a bonus. And the bonus was a uh, crate of cheap champagne in the locker room after the big win. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So. Good Lord. So, so I think we know who's responsible for <clears throat> the Black Sox. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's not surprising given all this miserliness. Oh, yeah. That Seacott, the 35-year-old pitcher who was just barely hanging on to his prime, he was one of the first White Sox players to realize the financial benefit to be gained from purposely plunking the series. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I mean, I'm sorry. I I know that he had a choice to do this, uh, but he was pushed into that. I mean, when you've got a boss like that. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I Uh, mean, and you're supposed to be the owner, the leader of the team. Uh, it's mm-hmm. your fault. Yeah. And Seacott knew he wasn't going to be in the game for much longer. The first time he has a bad oh, yeah. year, he's out of the league. Oh, yeah. So this way he figures he can get his $10,000 bonus after all and spit a little beech nut in Charles Comiskey's eye in the process. I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't hate it. I mean, I, I'm honest. Yeah. I don't hate it. So so the, the, the background work is starting to take place on this on what will become this uh, plan to fix the 1919 World Series. But what does that mean, even, really? What does it mean to fix a game? I mean, how do you throw a game? So, if you're a pitcher, maybe that it means that uh, you bean the guy at the plate on purpose. Yeah, or you walk somebody. You walk somebody. You take a little bit off your fastball at just the wrong time. I was going to say, you throw a grapefruit right down the middle. (laughs) exactly. Uh, Or maybe if you're in the outfield, you stumble on your way to a fly ball so that you have to try to dive for it and make it look dramatic, but then you just miss it by inches. Darn it. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe if you're in the infield, uh, you muff a a ground ball. Yeah. Or maybe you you scoop it up clean, but then you hesitate just one second too long before you hum it over to first, or you take a little mustard off of it. Anyway, there are plenty of different ways on offense. You just... You don't try too hard. You you lollygag on the bases or you take that third strike with a bat on your shoulder. There are plenty of ways yeah. to do it, mm-hmm. but you still had to have enough guys in different positions on the field. You had, you got to have a couple of outfielders. You got to mm-hmm. have a couple of infielders. You got to have a couple of pitchers. You can't be too obvious, I would guess. You can't be too obvious. Mm. But, you know, these guys are professionals and they weren't really worried about that aspect of it anyway. They didn't think they were going to get caught for one thing because who's going to know if they're tanking the play or not? Right. That's a, right. That's oh, a subjective matter. Up, Oops. Yeah. Oops. Sometimes people make errors. And that's very hard to prove. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Wait till we get to that part. Maybe some, <laughs> maybe some keen eyed sports writers, right. Would, would see that something looked a little fishy. The guys that covered these people every day, all season long and thought that didn't look like. But you would think the sports writers would be on the, you know, have their backs before all this happened with the, the terrible owner. Oh, sure. Did they not? They didn't write about how horrible he was or how cheap he was? No, not really. Because one thing that Charles Comiskey uh, loved to do, the money that he didn't spend on his players, he always spent on the sports writers who came to cover the White Sox. Of course, because he's not stupid. Yeah, they'd have this lavish setup uh, in the press box upstairs. So they were bought? A a private club to hang out in and drink before the game started for a couple of hours. Okay, so wait a minute, Scott. So the very people Mm -hmm. who are probably going to expose that these guys have been bought are also being bought 
Every time they come talk to this guy. Well, I wouldn't call it being bought. I would be. I would call it being uh, uh, treated very lavishly. Because if you're a, if you're a, if you're a real journalist, you're not going to let that affect the fact that if, if if there's some negative press about this person who's being nice to you, you still have to do it. That's your job. That's your obligation. But they didn't. Some of them did. Some of oh. them didn't. Okay. Some of them. There did. were yeah, there were stories being written about the fix is in in Washington or in 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 Chicago with the White Sox, mm-hmm. but. Mo- the big newspapers and the big uh, baseball paper at the time was called the Sporting News. And anytime stories like that made their way into the media, the Sporting News would defend the players and the owners in the league. And that was the most widely read baseball publication in the country at the time. So here we go again. It's just another effort to, to sweep this story under the rug. Okay. If the Sporting News says there's nothing to it, well, then obviously there's then nothing there's to nothing it. there's nothing to it. Right. Okay. They carried a lot of weight back then. All right. So we have all of this apathy about... We've got all this talk about maintaining the integrity of the game, but there's really a lot of apathy when it comes to actually putting the rubber to the road. It's not getting done. And so Arnold Rothstein, one of the most prolific gamblers and criminal minds in the country at the time, he's the guy who 20 years later takes young Lucky Luciano and young Meyer Lansky and young uh, Bugsy Siegel under his arm and teaches them how to be the next generation of organized criminals in this country. He's okay. the guy who teaches them how to do it. Okay. All right. So is he the godfather? He was, he would, there was no such thing at the time. But I mean, if we had to call somebody a godfather. Yeah, he would, yeah, he would be, would it be him? he would have been the guy in charge. Yeah. And you can okay. listen to our three-part series about that from just a, not too long ago. Yeah. Go to truecrimeoneasystreet.com and click the first button that says, click here to listen. It'll take mm-hmm. you to the archive and you can figure it out from there. Okay. One thing to know about Arnold Rothstein was that he very much liked to gamble. Uh, and with just about this guy, he, famously, he would bet on just about anything. Fam- he said uh, he could bet on anything, would bet on anything except the weather because that was the one thing he could not fix. <laughs> and that is the kind of gambler that Rothstein was. He wanted to bet on a sure thing. He didn't care. He didn't consider it cheating, Kelly, to bet on something with you that he already knew the outcome was. Mm-hmm. That just made him smarter than you. How is That's that? the way he thought. Okay. Gambling, though. If it's a sure thing. Well, it's gambling to you. He gets to see you <laughs> sit on pins and needles. And maybe that's where he gets his cheap thrill. Mm-hmm. But he likes to have the money in his pocket when it's all over and done with. He doesn't actually like to gamble. He yeah. likes to know yeah. he's going to have a big payday. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I mentioned already the movie Eight Men Out from 1988. Uh, and that's based on that book by uh, Ivan Asinoff. Viewers in the movie, viewers of the movie will get the impression that it was organized crime that got the idea started to fix the World Series. But Asenoff makes it pretty clear in his book that it was Seacott and one other guy on the team, a guy named Chick Gandel. He was the first baseman. So Seacott is a pitcher. Gandel is a first baseman. It is these two guys, really it's Gandel before it's even Seacott, who starts to put a plan together. He reaches out, uh, Gandel does, our first baseman. He reaches out to a buddy of his a gambler in Boston. His name is Sullivan. We'll mention his name a couple of times, but that's all you need to know. He's the gambler from Boston, Sullivan, that Gandel reaches out to and says, listen, if you could get together $80,000, we can throw the World Series. That'll be $10,000 a piece for me and seven other guys. I got it all planned out in my head. If you can get me the money, we'll do it. So Sullivan takes this idea to, they know who's going to be the first person who gets approached about 
financing this. It's going to be Arnold Rothstein. Mm-hmm. How much money is that today? Uh, $80,000 was, uh, that's 1.4 million bucks today. All right. So not a ton of money. I was about to say, it would take more now. Yeah. A lot more A now. lot more. But, you know, hmm. <laughs> I kind of, uh, I kind of see why they wanted to yeah. do this. Yeah, they there was, really wanted there was, to. There was nothing to stop them from doing it. No. There was no organization in place. There was no. There wasn't. The league didn't have a detective agency or a police department or any sort of enforcement. And it was being just, loyal to their owner proved nothing. Yeah, I mean, it was no. no they learned that the hard way. Yeah, and uh, like, who cared? I mean, you know, I'm sure you know if you're a baseball player, you want to win. But at this point, who are you winning for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't give a crap. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. My bonus was crappy champagne. Mm-hmm. For yep. one day. A case of flat champagne. Thanks, He gives pal. more than that to the sports writers that come up to his... Every day. Uh, yeah. So forget him. I, I don't disagree. Um, And if you've got a pitcher and a first baseman, wow, that's a good start. That's a good start. Throwing a, it is. a game. Uh, and here's a little known fact about the Black Sox scandal. Guys, there was not one conspiracy to try and fix the series. There were two. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. Were they competing? Sort of. Yeah, because what happened is a couple of other guys who were two-bit gamblers. These guys are a little bit further down on the gambler, sports gambler food chain than Rothstein and this Sullivan from Boston. But they knew Chick Gandle from years back, and so they heard the rumor. Hey, we hear the series is going to be fixed. Chick, what do you know about it? And Chick's already got 80 grand coming in. He's like, yeah, if you can get me $100,000, we'll do it. He pretends like he hasn't already made the first deal yet. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to talk like Rothstein here. That just makes him smarter than exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, guess what? The two guys who want, the two guys who uh, leave Chick Gandel's room looking for $100,000, guess where they go? Arnold Rothstein. <laughs> oh, okay. And so Rothstein knows, oh, they're definitely going to fix the series for $180,000 instead of the eighty that they were going to get. Now, Rothstein's going to end up funding the 80000 but he very publicly in a hotel restaurant uh, or a hotel uh, waiting area, Guest area. What am I trying to say? Lobby. lobby. Thank oh, you. Lobby. Jeez. Yeah. He very publicly tells these two two-bit gamblers, that's the craziest idea I've ever heard of. Nobody will try to fix the World Series. He's got witnesses around him. He's going to use this later when he testifies. Oh. That he called it off. How about that? But he's already he's already moved that <laughs> he's 80 already grand. Wrote the check. He's already, yeah. And it's not a check. You know what it is? It's $81,000 bills, which oh. are still in circulation at the time. <laughs> Made it easy to move that 80 grand. He didn't need a yeah. suitcase, just an envelope. No, yeah, that was it. Um, so of that 80 grand, 40 of it went into a safe in the hotel. And the other 40 was supposed to get taken straight to Gandal so that he could pay the first installment of money to the players. Because this is like the day before the World Series begins now. Yeah, because we're not throwing anything if we don't get a down payment right. on this. Well, now here's the thing. The one smart guy in the room was Eddie Seacott. Okay. In, these, in this room full of bumbling dumplings <laughs> that are the baseball players at the time. I mean, honestly, are these are a bunch of dumb country boys who just know how to play baseball. Yeah. Seacott says, I'll be in on the fix, but I need 10 grand up front because he's going to pitch the first game. Mm-hmm. And so the, the onus is on him to get this fix off and running because mm-hmm. he's got to lose game one. Yeah. And so he wants his money up front just in case it all goes south. Yeah, because he doesn't want him on the backside going, well, well you were only in yeah. one game. And, yeah. You know. So Chick Gandle takes the 40000 that you know, 40000 in the safe. He gets the other forty, and he's supposed to distribute it to the players. Well, he gives 
Seacott 10 grand. And then he takes the other 30 and goes and places his own wager on the Reds to win game number one. <laughs> And when the other players who were in on the fix say, hey, uh, Gandal, where's our money? Oh, yeah, it's coming. Don't worry about it. Rothstein's funding the whole thing. We got it figured out. It, it'll be here when it gets here. Oh. You just keep doing your thing. Oh, my. Yeah. So they didn't ask for their money up front, only the pitcher. Well, they didn't get it up front. I don't think they were smart enough to ask for it up front, except okay. for Seacott. I don't think anybody else was smart enough to ask for it. They and just, so then your first baseman takes the rest of it and places a wager. That's right. <laughs> Except for the 10 that he had to give Seacott. Yeah. So, all right. Now, our, our stew is simmering. Yeah. Grab a spoon and a bowl, and we're going to begin serving heaping helpings of Kelly and Katie's true crime stew <laughs> right after this word from our sponsors. As we head toward the 2023 holiday season, the Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism wants to remind everyone who lives in the surrounding area to shop local. Shopping locally means having lunch at a restaurant in town or purchasing unique items in a local shop or boutique or simply filling up your gas tank at the station down the street before hitting the road for a holiday vacation. Small businesses play a major role in maintaining our way of life by supporting our schools and nonprofits and providing jobs in the community. In short, they are giving back. The Chamber encourages you to give back to them by shopping local this holiday season. For more information, visit Cherokee-Chamber.org. Are you in the market for a full-time Weiss Lake home or recreational lot? Let Trini Davis and Elizabeth Powell put their all-star property group at Keller Williams Realty to work for you. Trini and Elizabeth are locals themselves, so they know the Weiss Lake area, and with over 40 years of experience, they're professional listing and buying agents, talented home stagers and photographers, and specialized marketing team will work to make your lakefront dreams come true. Check out the Keller Williams team on Facebook at All Star Property Rome. You can also visit at All Star Property Rome to browse their images on Instagram or give them a call at 706-844-7493. That's the All Star Property Group with Keller Williams Realty at 706-844-7493. You can hit pause, call them now, and make your Weiss Lake dreams a reality. Thank you to all of our sponsors. Scott. Okay, I'm finished with the cooking analogies. Okay. Now it's time to play ball. Good. Now, I have had to leave out a lot of details about how the plan to throw the World Series uh, between the Reds and the White Sox, it, it grew and then it morphed and then it changed completely and then it was at one point abandoned and then it was resurrected and it was ultimately successfully completed or so it seemed for a time. Actually, it took nearly a year for the story that I'm about to tell you to come unwound. Okay. This happened in October of 1919. It was September of 1920 before anything in, in the, the area of legal action mm-hmm. began to take place. Really? Okay. All right. So let's do a brief rundown of every game in the series. So game one takes place on October the 1st, 1919. And like I said, before the first pitch was ever thrown, there's already rumors circulating around town that something's up, something's weird, that something isn't right. And our old friend Eddie Seacott is on the mound for game one. He's the best pitcher available for the White Sox. They have one better pitcher on the staff, but he has, uh, he has I think he has pneumonia when the series starts. So the best guy left in the bullpen is Eddie Seacott. Now, according to the agreement the players had made with Rothstein, 
through Rothstein's man. Rothstein never got anywhere close to these guys in oh, person. Right. Yeah. He had intermediaries doing yeah, he, his he's bidding for stupid. him. Right. Yeah. Um, the plan was if, if the fix was on, then Seacott is going to hit the first batter for the Reds with the ball. <laughs> okay. And he does that on the second play of the game. Bam. Second pitch. He hits uh, Maurice Rath right between the shoulder blades. Ow. And that is everybody telling Rothstein it's on. Mm-hmm. So the first thing Rothstein did was run back into his casino in New York City and put another $100,000 down on the Reds to win game one. I mean, dang. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, Seagott pitched three really good innings. But then in the fourth inning, um, he hesitated on a potential double play ball that was hit right back to him at the mound and then lobbed a suddenly much slower fastball right across the plate at one point that scored a couple of runs. Uh, he was finally pulled when the score was 6-1, to one, and the final score of the first game was 9-1 to one in favor of the Reds. Ooh. <laughs> wow, he really, yeah. he really threw it. Now, by that evening, Sox owner Charles Comiskey is already hearing for the first time that he might actually believe it, the fix is in. Because how did my boys, the best team in baseball, the best hitting team in baseball, get beat 9-1? to one? We looked like a bunch of idiots out there today. Mm-hmm. That night in the team hotel, he went to the president of the American League, a man named Bancroft Johnston, and pleaded for help. Please help me try and get to the bottom of what might be going on. But Ban Johnson hated Charles Comiskey. Sounds like a lot of people did. And he said, get out of my office. You're just mad because you're, this is sour grapes because your team lost today. Yeah, get Mm -hmm. out of here. Nobody, and and again, nobody wanted to believe the possibility that the World Series could be fixed. Right. Game number two was also played in Cincinnati. $5 tickets were suddenly going for 25 bucks a piece. Oh. That's $450 Come watch the underdog. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lefty Williams pitched the uh, second game for the White Sox. And in the fifth inning, Williams suddenly forgot that he knew how to throw a curveball. Uh, the Southpaw walked three and then gave up a string of hits that resulted in three runs in the fifth inning, and the Reds won four to two. So Now tell some of our younger listeners what a Southpaw is. A Southpaw is a person who is left-handed. Thank you. Like I is. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's lefty. called a Southpaw? That's right. Yeah, it's a, a nickname for a left-handed person. Yes. Okay. Wow. It is also a beer. It, 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 yeah. I don't know if it's still. It used to, when I was in college. It was because yeah, I would same. buy them because I was left-handed and I thought it was cool to have a beard called Southpaw. It's it it didn't taste very good to me, but uh, yeah, you got me there. Anyways, yeah, learn something new. Yeah, um, game three took place at Comiskey Park in Chicago. So they they get on the train overnight, come back the next day and play game number three in Chicago. Seating capacity thirty two thousand. The place is full. Uh, youngster Dickie Kerr, another lefty that pitches for the White Sox. He's not one of the guys who's in on the fix. Okay. And he pitches a great game. The best game he'd pitched all season. He, a three hit shutout. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, and the, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if it was a three hit shutout. The Sox won three to nothing and it was a shutout for Kerr. So see that makes so nice it, game for that him. makes it look legit now. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. Well, you don't have to fix this. You don't have in. To, that, That's no. yes, exactly. Hold on to that thought because you don't have to lose them all. Right. Mm-hmm. But, well, you don't but, need to. But gamblers still get a little suspicious if you play too good when you've been paid to play bad. <laughs> yeah. And so that's after three games, it's Cincinnati with two wins, the White Sox with one win. What, do you play out of seven? It was out of nine this year. Okay. So you had to win five games to win the series back in 1919. Mm-hmm. 
So the same pattern is going to repeat itself in games four, five, and six. Seacott loses game four. Lefty Williams loses game five. Dickie Kerr wins game six. (laughs) Same thing again. And I'm just going to run through them really quick. So Uh, they've got one more game to lose. Exactly. When we get to, in game four, Seacott pitched again, like I said, and he made two key fielding errors, which is hard for a pitcher to even do to make two errors in one game. But Seacott uh, managed it, and the Reds won two to nothing. Hmm. Game five in Chicago, Lefty Williams again, like I said. One of the outfielders in this game uh, dropped a fly ball. He'd been given, these are one of the outfielders who was in on the fix. He'd gotten his $5,000 first installment the night before. And so he muffed an easy fly ball, dropped it, then muffed the throw back in, and that allowed three runs to score. Uh oh. So. And at this point in time, after five games, tightwad owner is fuming. Yeah. Gotta be. Uh, and the best hitting team in baseball after five games, the White Sox, had combined for only six hits in the first five games. Oh my gosh! And had Ooh. not scored a run in twenty-two straight innings. They're uh, they're being obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank goodness then that game six back in Cincinnati next. Uh, this is the Reds' first chance to win the series outright and, and be done with it. But Eddie Kerr pitched again for the Sox, not in on the fix. Uh, even though other Chicago players combined for three errors in the early innings, permitting four Cincinnati runs to score, the White Sox managed to come back and win the game five to four in 10 innings. You got one guy who's is saving the day. Yeah, <laughs> one guy, really. Game seven is in Cincinnati again, and our $10,000 man, Eddie Seacott, is pitching again. Uh, and the story was, in the book that after game six, a lot of the players hadn't been paid yet. They hadn't gotten their money. Seacott had, he got his 10 grand before he pitched the first game. Yeah. So he's good. So he's good. But a lot of these guys are getting 5,000 here and 5,000 there because what's happening is when the money's getting, uh, couriered to chip Gandel, he's scraping some off the top and going and betting on him. (laughs) So he's just putting some of these guys off Thinking, well, when I, when my wager comes in, then I can pay them, and I'll have turned their five into seventy five hundred. It's an investment opportunity for him. He thinks. Um, but so there was some speculation that that the White Sox had said, "To hell with it, we're we're done with this." There was never a gung ho effort. It wasn't like these eight guys sat around a card table one night and planned specifically how they were going to throw the World Series. There was no plan. And at this point in time, who's actually been paid? Your pitcher. Yes, Seacott's been paid. Uh, Gandal has been paid. Shoeless Joe Jackson got paid his $5,000 after game number four. Okay. Uh, and so did Lefty Williams. Okay. Uh, there are, that leaves three other guys, uh, two outfielders whose names mm-hmm. I haven't mentioned, and one other player. Oh, the, the other player was, actually, he wouldn't have been in on the scheme. He was a backup player. He just happened to overhear one of the very first conversations about it, and they had to cut him in so he'd keep his mouth shut. Oh, yeah. This uh, guy only batted twice in the whole World Series. Hey, you know what? Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, And I bet he struck out. Uh, he twice. probably did, yeah. He was, he was, I didn't look it up. I should have. But yeah, he was like taking a nap in the locker room, and th- they didn't see him. And Yeah. <laughs> But that's how unorganized this organized attempt to throw yeah. the World Series was. It was like I said, it was off, it was on. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. Yeah. So what if you gave me four grand? What if I want to go out and play my butt off anyway? What are you going to do? Call the cops? I don't know, Mr. Rothstein. Be careful yeah. with that. Yeah, careful with Arnold Rothstein. I was going to say that's uh, maybe a kneecap. Might wake up might, at the bottom of yeah. the lake. 
Well, I don't know if it if it's uh, if it's bottom of the lake kind of money, but it's definitely a kneecap or yeah. an elbow money. Yeah. So when Arnold Rothstein started to hear these rumors about maybe they're gonna go, they're not gonna go through with it. Mm-hmm. We're not paying them, or they're not getting their money. So now he is really upset. Well, Rothstein, right? he did not call the police, but he mm-hmm. did place a phone call, and he called a guy who lived in Chicago that would, for five hundred bucks, threaten to kill you. Well, sure, yeah. because and he's so, got a lot of money yeah. on this. So, uh, so somebody approaches Lefty Williams the night before the eighth game in the series. Now, this is after the the Sox have won Game Seven, four to one. Okay. And so game eight is, is the one that's coming up. Lefty Williams is going to pitch game eight. And he's coming out of a restaurant with his wife the night before he's going to pitch in the eighth game. And a guy says, can I speak to you for a moment, please, Mr. Williams? Gets him away from his wife, pulls out a gun and says, your wife is never coming home if you don't lose tomorrow's game Ooh. in the first inning. Oh, my Lord. How do you lose it in the first inning? <laughs> I'm about to tell you. Okay. Um. Here's a, a breakdown of some how that money got handed out. I forgot that I had this. Now, there's one guy who's going to be uh, considered a member of the eight men out. His name is Buck Weaver. He was the third baseman. He was at the initial meeting where it was discussed, but Buck never took a dime, mm-hmm. played his butt off in the World Series, batted 324 in the series, had 11 hits, uh, uh, four doubles and a, and a triple, I think. No errors in the field. Played a great game. So... But he didn't want any money. He just wants to play, but he was at that first meeting. Now, five players had received $5,000 each. Mm-hmm. $5,000 each. Yeah. Seacott got his ten, And Chick Gandel, he had 35000 stashed away somewhere because that was all that he had that was supposed to be somebody else's. <laughs> oh, my god. That he had kept. Yeah. But they're not being, God, come on, guys, you got to have a finesse to this. Like mm-hmm. saying you got to lose it in the first inning. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, if you've got all this money on this, be smart about it and, and, and chill out a little bit and let them, well, let them do it where it's, um, where it doesn't look obvious. Well, the whole thing with the guy with the gun freaked lefty out because the next morning or the next day, uh, he gave up four straight hits and three runs in the first inning before they yanked him out. So it was three to nothing before he left the field, uh, before an out had even been, I think there was one out mm-hmm. when they yanked him. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds ended up winning the game 10 to five, okay. which meant that the Reds had won the world series, mm-hmm. uh, five games mm-hmm. to three. And, and the, uh, the Cinderella story has came through complete. The, yep. the underdog has won and everybody loves a, a good underdog. The first story. time in the 43 year history of the Cincinnati Reds that they had ever won a world series. And they're like, this is awesome. Yep. So that was the end of the 1919 season. 1920 season comes along. Okay. And there's all these rumblings about what happened last year at the World Series. It dogs the White Sox all the way through the season in 1920. And they're in it again. All these guys are still playing, except for Gandal, who has retired. Because <laughs> he's made yeah, all this money. Gandal has moved note. to California. Let's go out on And he's note. gone. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, the, but the other guys are there, and they're having a great year again in uh, 1920. And then September of 1920 came along. And there was a story about another gambling uh, scheme. I forget the two teams that were involved, but it was a standalone game. It was the Phillies and somebody, or maybe the Cubs. So in Cook County, Illinois, where Chicago is, they decide to convene a grand jury. They've heard enough of these stupid rumors. They've been hearing the rumors about the White Sox from last season. Here's another story. Some guy who's up for re-election 
Here's the baseball fans clamoring for something to be done, and so he calls for a grand jury to convene and get to the bottom of it. How about that? You know that scene in Airplane where the shit hits the fan? <laughs> yeah. This is where it happens. Here we go. So, when the grand jury convened in September, one of the first people that they wanted to talk to was our old buddy, Eddie Seacott. Sure. Yeah. They wanted him to testify under oath about any baseball-related underhandedness he might know about. At which point, Seacoat proceeded to fold faster than Superman on Laundry Day. No, really? That quick? Just like that. We did it. We were crooked. Yes, yes, we did it. The whole thing. He and Shoeless Joe Jackson and Lefty Williams all signed. They waived their right to immunity. Oh. And signed full confession. Did they have a lawyer? No, they did not. Oh, no. Yeah. Come on. Mm-hmm. So faced with this on-the-record testimony from first Seacott and then Williams and then Joe Jackson, White Sox owner Charles Comiskey had no choice but to suspend the seven players whose names got brought up in all these stories about the 1919 World Series. Ultimately, the grand jury in Chicago indicted eight members of the Black Sox and five local gamblers. Notably, Arnold Rothstein's name was not amongst those who found themselves in hot water. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. So the trial was delayed several times before it finally commenced in July of 1921. So we go all the way through the 1920 season. The White Sox barely miss going to the World Series again by two games, I think, the Cleveland Indians go to the World Series that year. And all these guys are suspended. Well, not until the very end of the season, and it turns out it doesn't matter because they're not going to be in the postseason anyway. Okay. So 1921 rolls along, or comes along, Mm -hmm. and it's July. It's the middle of the summer before this is all finally adjudicated. We get everybody into a trial courtroom, Mm -hmm. and I think it's just a judge. It's not a... No, there's a jury. It's a jury. It's Mm -hmm. a judge and a jury. Um. You remember the story about those two-bit hoodlums that wanted to get in on the thing? Yeah. And they left disgusted because nobody would give them the money? Right. Well, guess who found out about the grand jury testimony and wanted to put in their two cents worth? (laughs) Those guys. And they gave up everybody who was involved on the White Sox. They gave up Arnold Rothstein, who, again, mysteriously, was never indicted. But they lay out the whole scheme. Mysteriously, yeah. Yeah, I bet him and whoever's up for re-election are... They know each other somehow. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> whoever it was that kept Arnold Rothstein off of the list of indicted co-conspirators must also have had a key to the prosecution's filing cabinet. <laughs> because before the case was over, the three signed confessions had mysteriously disappeared Ooh. from the prosecution's files. Really? Yeah. I think it may be a prosecutor. <laughs> Do we think? To borrow a bit of legal parlance from Katie's side of the studio, uh, the charges against the eight players and the five hometown gamblers named in the indictments were vague and nebulous because it turns out it was not illegal to bribe a baseball player or for a baseball player to throw a game. I was wondering what the charges were. What are you guilty of then? They eventually settled on conspiracy to commit fraud because by lying to Charles Comiskey, they were damaging his business. Or at least had the potential to damage it if, well, yeah, if, you know, if they got that. embarrassed yeah. and mm-hmm. attendance dropped. Regardless of what we think of him, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is true. So. Yeah. Um, 
whatever the charges were, the jurors weren't buying them because they, after three hours of deliberating, came back out and let everybody go home. Well, Not guilty be, on all counts. The players, the gamblers, nobody was guilty. That would be very hard. I mean, you probably had several baseball fans on this jury. Funny you should say that because according to Asanoff in his book, Eight Men Out, there was a spontaneous celebration in the courtroom <laughs> and the players were hauled out on the shoulders of the jurors themselves. <laughs> What? <laughs> is yeah. this true? Yes, that is true. The judge himself even got involved in the celebration <laughs> after the players were found oh. not guilty. Nobody wanted so the White Sox in the slammer. they are not guilty, and we've never seen these confessions, so that's just hearsay. Well, that's true. Uh, actually, uh, remind me to get back to that in just okay. a second. I'll tell you a story that'll make okay. you laugh. All right. Uh, and so the, the players were free. Okay. For 24 hours. <laughs> Then what? Well, in response to all of these cheating allegations, the players, uh, the owners of the teams in the league had gotten together and hired a federal judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis to what become the... He sounds scary. His father was a, uh, he was a surgeon in the Civil War who got injured at Kennesaw Mountain, Georgia and named his son Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Well, that's a little much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought so too. I mean, come on. Okay, so Ken. Then, so they made yeah. So they made they made Ken the uh, commissioner of. They made him a new position, the commissioner of baseball. Okay. And they uh, gave him a lifetime contract. Okay. And a ridiculous salary, something like fifty thousand dollars, which was nuts back then. Uh, Ken Mo, if you're nasty. But it was be it, it was to put him. Oh, it was to put him beyond reproach. Yeah. He was a very yeah. well-respected judge anyway, and if we make him a lifetime appointment, nobody can hold his job over his head. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we give him more money than all the team owners make, so nobody can bribe him. And the first thing that Kennesaw Mountain Landis did, come, he came out the next day and banned the eight players for life. Mm. From ever playing baseball again. I'm quoting now from his okay. uh, right. statement. Regardless of the verdict juries, I'm sorry, let me start over. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in conference with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about them will ever play professional baseball. <laughs> now, the passage about no player who sits in conference, that sentence was written specifically for Buck Weaver, mm. who did not no. take any money, played his butt off in the series, but was in that first meeting where it was discussed and didn't rat on his friends. And so he got kicked out of the league for the rest of his career as well. So he's basic. I mean, he's taking away some, in my opinion, of, of some civil rights here. I mean, you can sit and talk to people well, about whatever the heck you want to talk to them about. And then at the end of the day, it, it's what your actions are, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, come on well, now, Kennesaw Mountain, whatever you are. One of the things, I mean, this was a very slow process. I think it was the 50s before the players unionized Mm -hmm. and had collective bargaining rights to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's changed plenty of times through the years, but it was instances like these. Like I'm thinking that that his voice sounds like, uh, um, like a Southern politician. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm getting a foghorn leghorn vibe. As he's saying this down his nose, probably some glasses sitting on the end of it. Well, the one thing about judge Landis was he was a very, one of the reasons he got the job, he was a huge fan of baseball. And so they knew that he would protect the integrity of the game. And Charles Comiskey lost a lot of money when these seven players got banned for life because he owned them exclusively and had paid, he'd paid $60,000 for the rights to shoeless Joe Jackson. Yeah. And then paid him six or $7,000 a year. So it didn't necessarily help him. No, but at, this was the point. They finally got to the point where they mm-hmm. said, damn it, if we don't do something, mm-hmm. we're going to lose the integrity of the game. So we've got yeah. to 
we've got to swallow this poison pill right now. Yeah. And, and get rid of all the dead stuff and start over and grow it new. And then fast forward later and we have, uh, what is it, steroids? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's yeah. plenty of scandals through the years and Pete Rose gambling and, you know, and now with FanDuel and, and DraftKings and you, you can bet on baseball every day. They're talking about Las Vegas getting a Major League Baseball team. They've already got a, an NFL football team. Yeah, they're right. And there is talk of the Oakland A's moving yeah. to Las Vegas. Yeah. So we've come, in a lot of ways, we've come full circle on what we think about gambling and sports and hopefully the integrity is there now and, and there are enough uh stops in place to keep something horrible from happening. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it happened well, it once. Just, it seems like that the players are well paid now. And that's it doesn't a part of seem it. like they, yeah. yeah, would have as much of a motivation to, to cheat. Yeah. And this, it, I mean, as far as gambling cheating, yeah. I mean, I, and it, I, it took know. the, I think it took the, the, the team owners a long time to realize that that was the weak link in their chain to try and prevent gambling from getting into the sport. Was that they didn't pay their players Stop enough? Stop being to, cheap. Yeah, yeah. They didn't pay them enough to to laugh at. If you want to run it like grand. a business, then run it like a business. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you own a pizza company and and you don't offer benefits and you pay less, yeah. Well, the pizza company down the road who does is going to take all of your players. I mean, it's it it's really the way that it was set up was mm-hmm. very unfair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're winding down now. Just a quick postmortem about a couple of the names that we've mentioned. Arnold Rothstein uh, did not quite make it another decade after the White Sox scandal of 1919. He was shot in 1928 uh, on his way to a late night business meeting at the Park Central Hotel. The story goes that Rothstein had finally stumbled upon a card game that he could not fix, had lost $320,000 over the course of three straight days at the table, and then got up and refused to pay what he owed. That will get you shot. He was 46 years old. Oh, my gosh. Sheila's Joe Jackson spent a few years playing in the outlaw leagues. Okay. Where Judge Landis's authority did not reach. Under an assumed name, even, he moved to uh, Greenville, South Carolina and opened a liquor store. And uh, Shoeless Joe, who, once got a, who got his nickname for once playing in his stocking feet because his new cleats were too small, in case you were curious where the nickname came from. Uh, he died at his home. In 1951, at the age of 64, never having played baseball, organized, legitimately organized baseball again. He had to play without shoes. One time. Because his cleats were too small. Yeah. I would have thought the nickname, like he ran out of his shoes or busted his shoes. That's like the story that he, uh, that's terrible. The new shoes were too small, so he played they in his stocking feet. They couldn't get him some shoes. Right. Before the game started. It's Charles Comiskey we're talking about That's what about I'm here. saying. Yeah. Come on, guy. Are uh, you shocked? <laughs> not really. That half of your team wanted to screw you over? No. Uh, Buck Weaver, the third baseman who refused to take any money and played his butt off in the series, uh, never played again, but he spent the rest of his life writing letters to Judge Landis, and then after Judge Landis died, to the men who replaced him, begging to be reinstated just so he could be considered for the Hall of Fame or whatever. There's things that you have to be, you can't mm-hmm. be banned and mm-hmm. be considered for those other things. But he never, uh, never. They never did. Never did. Um, Charles Comiskey was heartbroken by what had happened, obviously, uh, with his new, with his big stars band in for the 1921 season. Um, the White Sox went right to the cellar and stayed there. It was uh, five years after Comiskey died before the White Sox ever competed for a league title again. Uh, They finally won one in 1959, and then they finally won another World Series in 2005. 
Oh, that's a so long time in between. It's, it's been a while. Now, as for baseball itself, as we wind this thing down, it was historians of the game will tell you that it was the decisions that Judge Landis made to ban those players for life that helped to save the game of baseball. Mm. There were some other things about the owners and the things that they changed about the way that they paid their players and how that all worked out that eventually helped the game of baseball to save itself. But what really saved the game of baseball was the fact that in 1920, a young kid named George Herman Ruth started to play for the New York Yankees. He had been sold from the Boston Red Sox for 125 grand to the Yankees. And in 1920, he hit 54 home runs all by himself. That was more than most other teams hit combined in 1920. In 1921, he hit 59 home runs. And so... Tell me again, how he was sold for how much? $125,000. Mm. Now, that was 1919 money. So that was, you know... And that began their, million. their curse. The long-to-be-cursed Boston Red Sox who finally didn't win a series until, what was it, 2008? It was, yeah. I forget. Well, I don't know if it that was the actual year, but it was well into the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, you Red Sox fans out there were mad at me for not remembering that. But if you're a Red Sox fan, you know those Go watch Fever Pitch and it'll tell you. But anyway, so it was really, it was Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth brought the people back to the the game. The people who might have been inclined to leave the game of baseball because the integrity had been damaged. They still wanted to come see Babe Ruth knock it out into the parking lot. And so that is one of the things that helped to save the game of baseball and get it to where we could have this era in the fifties and sixties and Roger Maris and mm-hmm. uh, when the thirties, but you know, uh, Mickey Mantle and uh, they saved the game of baseball. I think with the way that they did this. And so now our meal has been served and it's time to do the dishes. And I'm assuming that you guys are going to make me do that since I'm the one who made this mess. to begin <laughs> with. Uh, yeah, but that's all yeah, I have I today, guys. Well, that was great. I learned all kinds of stuff today, Scott. Thank you so You're much welcome. for that. That was fun. I had a good time with that one. Well, good. I, I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't particularly enjoy watching a game of baseball unless yeah. it's a, you know, world series game or yeah. something, or if I'm there yeah. in the stadium, but uh, that was not boring. That, that was Yay. not drawn out. That was interesting. Katie's I still awake, it. so it could yeah, not have been is. a complete disaster. That is true. And she's yeah. tired from driving all morning. <laughs> yeah. Is that it? Are we done? Well, not yet. No. Uh, let's tell everybody about Instagram oh, and yeah, Facebook and our website. And uh, visit all of those things. Go to TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com. And like I said earlier, you click here to listen. It'll take you to our Spotify archive. Yeah. And uh, then there's uh, merchandise links. And you can find out about us with our little short bios. And Say go something to, nice. Yeah. And go to Apple iTunes and give us a five-star review and comment on that so that we know who you are. Mm-hmm. But that those five stars help us immensely. Yeah. The, the comment only helps us because then we know who you are and we can give you a shout out. But it's those five stars that five help stars. us yes. immensely. Huge so thank you so much for that. Good night, everybody. 